And we are live. That's live for us anyways. And you're locked in to the Kansas City Social Hour. And I'm your humble host, Ruben Ortiz. Let's get it on. What's up, Kansas City? Yeah, another beautiful evening here in Kansas City. It looks like the Kansas City Chiefs received their rings today. I've been seeing a lot of posts on the Super Bowl rings of the Kansas City Chiefs. Congratulations to those guys. Congratulations to those Chiefs fans that have been waiting a really long time for that. It's awesome. Uh, We are very fortunate to have been able to celebrate with a parade and all that before all this COVID shit went down. And this season looks like they're going to have a season, which is great. I hope everything goes well. I know that the NBA has done a tremendous job with their bubble, and they seem to have it locked down on how to execute a safe, healthy, and fun season. College kids, elementary school kids, high school kids, all headed back to school. Some of them are doing remote learning. And the winter is upon us. It'll be really interesting to see where we're at when we get on the other side of the wintertime when spring breaks. And hopefully we will be doing well as a country at that point. A lot of things up in the air. But I will cover that on an episode of The Matrix This is The Rum Diary. I sat down with Brandon Cummings. We had an awesome conversation about Foursquare Rum Distillery in Barbados. It was very informative. I can't wait to talk to this guy more about the other spirits that he knows a lot about. Mezcal being one of them. We talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about bourbon. But mostly Foursquare Rum. And without anything further, let's get into this motherfucking podcast. I will catch you. On the motherfucking flip side. Hey, what's going on, Brandon? How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. How are you doing today? Good, good. So this is the Casey Social Hour. I'm here with Brandon Cummings, the director of education at Altamar Brands. Is that right? Is that how you pronounce it? Altamar? Yep, Altamar. Alta is in high, Mar is in the seas. Um, you know, and primarily we've worked as kind of a spirits importer, so coming from the high seas. That's awesome. So today we'll be talking some rum and in particular four square rum. Uh, Brandon, uh, before we get into the rum part of it, I just wanted to get a little bit of your background and some of your expertise and how you found yourself at this point in your career. Sure. Well, I mean, in general, I always tell people that I've always just been a huge nerd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm a total geek, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm surrounded by like Legos and Star Wars and Marvel characters in my office. Um, 
but in, in college I was bartending and by the way, I'm, I'm actually from the Kansas city area, but I was bartending out in uh, Manhattan, Kansas while I was going to school at K state. And the wine bar that I was working at was really pushing us hard to like, not just be able to say, Oh, well you should, you know, buy this wine cause it's more expensive, et cetera, or know what the varietals are. Um, but they were really insistent on like, you need to know the production standards, why it's different. You're going to be, you know, dealing with guests that are coming in that are going to know way more about wine than you are. So you need to spend a lot of time educating yourself. So that's kind of where my obsession with the alcohol beverage industry started. Um, so bartended, you know, my way through college there, moved up to Kansas City, um, started, I was actually a, a volunteer tour guide at Boulevard for a couple of years back when oh, they still awesome. had the old, <laughs> the old tour guides. That. Um, I've got my name tag up on my shelf still, but <laughs> you know, then I went on to, uh, I was still kind of obsessed with cocktails and obsessed with that world. Right. And so not just like production, but also, uh, kind of understanding the, the history of cocktails as well. Um, went on to be one of the opening bartenders at manifesto when that first opened out of the crossroads, um, through that met my good buddy, Ryan, maybe, uh, who now runs and operates, uh, Jay Rieger and co, uh, the distillery, uh, down in the East bottoms. That's and fantastic. He, myself, and another friend, Doug Frost, all started the Paris of the Plains Cocktail Festival. And that was in like 2010, 2010, 2011, something like that. Um, maybe 12. I, my, my brain is fuzzy at this point. But uh, basically, just like a national or like, you know, a city, a Kansas City based cocktail festival that was kind of celebrating Kansas City's culture, jazz, barbecue, but also drinks history, prohibition, cocktails, all of that. Um, so we did that and then started a, a little cocktail consulting company, um, worked with a number of local establishments. So like, um, oh gosh, I think the most notable that are still around and cranking, like the last project I got to work on was actually helping to consult on opening the Monarch Bar um, down on oh, the wow. plaza. Um, so that was like the last big project. But prior to that, myself and my business partners um, we were also, we did like the, the batched cocktails for both Boulevardia, uh, for about three years and for Kansas City Irish Fest also for two, three years. So we were kind of doing, trying to figure out how to make cocktails in volume, you know, to the tune of like 10,000 cocktails at a batch. Um, I love it. Yeah. So just, you know, trying to geek out about all that stuff and then eventually became obsessed more with spirits I reached out to Altamar. Um, they had a tequila that I was particularly obsessed with and, it got to the point that they said I was asking more questions than anybody had asked previously. And so if I just <laughs> wanted to come on board uh, and talk directly to the distillers themselves. Um, and nowadays I kind of work as, you know, uh, one of my nicknames is the troll under the bridge, but I kind of act as like the gatekeeper for new spirits in our portfolio. Um, as well as as director of education, I kind of write all the materials and make sure that everybody, not just on our team, but, you know, in the trade and consumers and everywhere is educated about the brands, the processes, the products, but then also the categories that they exist in. So. Man, what a fun journey, man. It just sounds like such a, it's such a great example of someone just following their interests and their passion, not even looking for, uh, you know, the payout or the opportunity. It just, it's just <laughs> kind of happening as you're following this, this uh, passion that you have for, you know, uh, cocktails, spirits, the whole, you know, um, alcohol infused world, I guess. Completely. But yeah. yeah, it's just an awesome example of that. You know, just uh, following what you love. I, I love the the fact that you were because I always thought it would be fun to be uh, 
do those tours, the boulevard ones. Yeah. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. And it, yeah, it's it's a cool gig, you know. And I think a lot of people <laughs> start off like that within Boulevard, but yeah, it's just cool that you you did that more, I think probably just just to for the fun aspect of it, like just the interest more than right, you were looking for for like a paying gig. Is that right? Yeah, completely. I mean, because yeah, those those boulevard tours, you know, it's basically it was fully volunteer at that time. So they didn't have oh, the, okay. Yeah. So now they have a paid, they have a paid team, but back then it used to be a complete volunteer tour guide um, team, you know? And so that was, and that was obviously what long before like the, the sale to Duval, um, or develop, but they, uh, you know, you're essentially compensated. You had to give such a huge deal. I know you had to give one Saturday a month. And so you, you know, like you got on the schedule, it was yourself. It was like two people on a team and you got to go home with like, basically a four different six packs of usually like mislabeled beer, you know, or just like experimental beers, things that like weren't necessarily ready for the public. But yeah, I mean, you probably appreciated completely. I mean, like for me, (laughs) dude, like that whole, the whole purpose of being there was that I was like, man, like I just moved to Kansas city, you know, from, from K state, from Manhattan. I've always loved Boulevard, like loved the story and they're doing some new crazy, like the smokestack series was just really like cranking. So it's like, oh, I want to, I want to learn more about these beers. Like that's so, you know, and there's no better way to learn than like to throw yourself into it. Right. So that's right. I was like, yeah, it's such screw. a great company too, man. They've done some really Completely. cool stuff and now they got their barrel program going and just still releasing a lot of cool, innovative things. And yeah, they're just a, they're a great company. Um, so you going back to Altamar brands that you, you mm-hmm. all offer a, a portfolio that consists of you know, and this is off of your website, compelling brand stories, and you want to deliver innovation and creativity on an unanticipated level, which stands on three legs, production, the distiller, and the home place. I, I really enjoyed reading uh, the the mission statements, whatever that you guys have on the website, because it doesn't seem like you guys are just going around picking anybody, right? You, you, go, you want people that are as passionate as you guys are. and and um, so can you speak a little bit about how you may choose specific brands to represent or what that process looks like? Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it can be painful. Um, you know, because I mean, <laughs> the, the challenge is, man, like there's so much stuff as far as, especially in the spirits world, but there's so many things that are on the shelf that are, are really nothing more than like marketing, right? Like it's, it's mar- literally marketing in a bottle. So it's like, you could just take a pretty package pour a lot of money into that, make sure the bottle looks cool, make sure you're paying for good advertising, good social media presence. Um, you know, and then you can, you can tweak the flavor of the spirit itself. So yeah, for me, it all starts, everything starts with a blind taste. And just to give like some context, for example, we've been trying to find a mezcal, um, not, not necessarily trying to find, but mezcal is something that, you know, I was because of my passion for agave spirits. Like I've always wanted to find a mezcal to have in the portfolio. And I've been sent, I think the, the count right now is like over 32 different brands in the last four years. And I've only really allowed three or four of them to make it to the, like the next phase of consideration. And none of them have really like completed the whole, the whole thing. So, you know, for me, the first thing is that anytime, cause we're sent samples and we go kind of hunting for things too. Right. So it's twofold. Um, no matter what, like as soon Brandon, as the spirit, yeah, can you hear me? I'm sorry, man. Like it's some wild, 
there's like a major argument happening. <laughs> like it's always so quiet in my backyard. Yeah, there's yeah, like yeah. literally a feud going on. <laughs> I don't know if the mic is picking that up, but it's nuts, man. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not catching it over okay. here. But. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, but but I was trying to follow you. And uh, you're all good, dude. <laughs> there's like some serious shit going down. Golly, mean, that's wild. <laughs> Hope everybody's you okay. The car? You mean hop in the car? Roll over there. Make sure everything's cool. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. I'm just like, it, I'm just, it, 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 normally I would be able to just block it out, but it's so intense. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry for everybody. Uh, yeah, because I have one uh, earbud in and the other one's just open because I want to hear myself. You know. And, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Because otherwise it's weird. Yeah, yeah. It like, is I weird. had to take. I had to take the headphones off, man, because I was just like, ah, no, it's just, I can't hear my voice that, yeah. that close. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels, I'm so sorry, though, man. It looks like they've gotten to some kind of <laughs> uh, a lull in there, in that craziness, man. But go, you were talking about mescal. You guys were trying, you were, you had been looking for uh, a mescal and how difficult that was and what that process looked like. Is that where we were at? Yeah, yeah, that's where we were at. So, you know, I'd been sent somewhere of upwards of like 30 different brands. And, you know, it's a matter of, for me, when, when I start it, no matter if like, if the brand is sent to us or if it's something that like we go hunting for that looks like it might be legit. Um, it all starts for me with blind tasting and blind tasting, you know, it's a matter of, I need to, I, I just pour the liquid in glass and I usually pick two to three competitors that I know are kind of like gold standards for the category. Right. And so it's, if I was to walk in any bar USA or especially like any bar with one of my good buddies here and say, Hey man, give me like one of your best mezcal, you know, between 40 to $60 or between 80 to a hundred dollars, depending upon what, like, you know, the price range is supposed to be for quality. Um, so it's kind of blind tasting and not knowing which is in which class. Right. So I'm tasting three different samples and it's got to come out at or near the top, right. For it to even be considered. From there, awesome. it, then, it then becomes a matter of reaching out and getting d- deeper into details of like, okay, you know, what's your, what are your sourcing practices? What are your distillation practices? Um, you know, are you using any kind of additives? What are you using for filtration? Why are you making the, the production decisions you're making? You know, are you using only farmed agave? Is it your own estate agave? You know, and this is obviously specific for mezcal, but it's that same kind of process of teasing out the production details um, and there's been some producers where it's been like, look, man, the juice is great. So tell me a little bit more about your process. And they're like, oh, well, our, our process is proprietary and it's secret. And it's like, all right, we're done. I mean, cause like, I, it's, that's not going to fly, right? It, like if yeah. you want us to be your partner on this, you've got, <laughs> you've got to own up to what this is. Like I'll sign a non-disclosure all day. Um, but you've got to, you've got to tell me about your process because otherwise I'm going to believe that you're doing something underhanded, you know? That's so, that's interesting. So you want to make sure that who you're dealing with, is, like their their processes are specific to what you guys are looking for and up to the standards that you guys are would expect from somebody that you represent. Completely, yeah. So I mean, it's got to start with the liquid first, right? It's it's more about the liquid that's in the bottle than it being a fancy package. And then the next step through like teasing out the production process is you also typically validate the distiller, right? And so you you tend to we want to find people that are super passionate about what they're doing just as much as we're passionate about telling the story. Right. Cause that just makes it that much easier to do. Um, so, and you know, that's it's for that. like the nerds like us that are, that want to know the, the backstory too. And, and it's a growing group. I should say, it's not, it's not like, you know, in a vacuum, like 
this is spreading. You know, I think bourbon is testament to that. Like people want to know the, I think a lot of it with the, with the bourbon rushes, folks just uh, being interested in, in the early distilling process, what that looked like, uh, the American history of it, you know, and that it's reflective in a lot of the names that they have and so on. So yeah, this, this, uh, this movement to want to know where stuff comes from and how it's produced and all that is, is becoming more important. And you guys are, yeah. seem ahead of that, you know, right now, cause some folks, like you said, they're just out there to, you know, you see these one and done brands that come out, they make a big splash, you know, with the, with the party crowd and then they're gone the next year and you, you never hear about them again. And you guys want a more, uh, it looks like you're building more towards longevity. Completely. And thank you for that. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I like to, you know, my own ego likes hearing that we're ahead of, <laughs> ahead of the times, but no, you know. when I was reading your, your statement, I'm like, gosh, that's so crazy that I don't see this more often. You know what I mean? It yeah. just seems like such a no brainer. And, uh, and by the brands that I've seen, it, it's apparent that that's what you guys are doing. It's not just, it's not just uh speak up on a webpage, you know, like and Foursquare, I think is an excellent example. And obviously we're going to get into that here in yep. a bit too, but I had a real quick question for you. Cause I don't know a whole lot. I, uh, about tequila, I uh -huh. know that is, it seems to me like when, you know, my times in Mexico, I've come across a lot of, uh, and I loved mezcal, mm -hmm. but I, is that what, at what point does mezcal become tequila? Are they the same animal? No, not at all. I mean, so the way that I always try to explain it to people is like, if you consider all agave spirits, right? You look at the agave plant and think of it almost more like thinking of wine or grapes, right? There's over 200 different known varietals and different species of the wow. plant, all of which like can be wildly different. There's about 100 and 117 of them are indigenous to Mexico. And of That's those 117, awesome. about 47 or so are considered like good quality for like sugar acidity to actually distill into spirit, right? Uh -huh. So you've got 47 different varietals that just like wine will make completely different spirits. Um, That's awesome. Now, there's there's also like, you know, technically and like you and I talking, if I distilled anything from those 47 spirit or 47 agave and I was in Mexico, um, you know, I could probably call that mezcal. Um, legally, I can only do that if I am from one of nine states in Mexico. Um, and beyond that, tequila is only from one varietal and only from five states in Mexico, which with, with Jalisco really being dominant in that 90, it's like 92% of all tequila production is coming out of Jalisco. So even though other states like Michoacan and Nayarit and Tamaulipas um, have also had long distilling like histories of distilling tequila, um, still like 90 some percent of it is coming out of Jalisco. That is awesome. And this is going to tie in good with our discussion with Foursquare and what they're trying to do as I mean, what, uh, Richard is trying to do for rum as well. Cause right. Right. Is if, if that uh, bourbon has similar standards. Uh, I, I didn't even realize that until you said that. I mean, I'm just not huge on, uh, haven't been, I mean, I drink tequila. I love it, but I don't know a whole lot about it. So that that's, that's really cool. Um, yeah. No, uh, we always hear a lot about, I always hear a lot about blue agave. I guess that would be one of the, the varieties. that's uh, one of the best for it's uh, sugar and it's uh, ability to, create a uh, great tasting rum is all right i mean uh tequila is all right yeah so well i mean so tequila can legally only be made from 
the blue agave, which is like its full oh, Latin okay. name. Its full Latin name is agave tequiliana Weber variety azul, right? So like the blue agave. Um, but it is out of the 47 some varietals, it is one of only four that actually does well with cultivation. So otherwise oh. the other 40, the other like 43 or so, like only really do well growing wild. So it's like, you can't That's really cultivate amazing. the plant. Whereas like the blue agave is one that has, you know, it's basically been hybridized over time and it does really well with cultivation. Now, that being said, there are like a lot of other like farming and sustainability issues that surround tequila production because what you've got is essentially a monoculture that's developed. And so like if you're going to get a pathogen that infects the blue agave, there's a risk that like you could lose 90% of the blue yeah. agave in the ground. But that's I mean, that's a that's a whole other like when you and I were talking, I was like, <laughs> the biggest challenge is going to be getting me to shut up for a little bit. So. No, no, that's amazing. I, I, I don't mind geeking out on that kind of stuff. But it, yeah, the so, you know, the genetics of the plant, um, if one plant gets sick, then they, they're all susceptible to it because they're all, all so similar. Yep. And yep, um, there's, there's no biodiversity. Is there like a... so? And this is the nerd in me again. So is there like a, a plant out there that does grow wild that you know of that does produce like some awesome tequila, but it's just not uh, conducive to being um, um, uh, widely cultivated because of, you know, it, it just grows wild. Is there, so, is there a specific one that people, or do you not know of that? Anything yeah, like no, that? I mean, so we would be getting into mezcal only because again, because there's only the one varietal um, that can be used for tequila, right? So in the world of mezcal, um, when we're talking about some of the more wild varietals, You've got, for example, Tobala um, is one wild varietal of the plant, um, and it grows only in like really high elevation, really rocky, um, you know, stressful circumstances. Um, but because of that, it produces some really, really beautiful distillate um, just because it's got, it's got really good like acidity. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the end spirit ends up showcasing a lot of that character. And I mean, like, uh, agave in general, man, is a total rabbit hole and it is, super, you know, <laughs> you can study it. You're good. You can study it your entire life and, you know, still not just barely scratch the surface. Like there's ongoing academic studies right now trying to date the distillation. Yeah, it's been, like, I mean, it's uh cactus juice, right? The, one of the old, <laughs> it's gotta be one of the first things that people ever, and what's so crazy about it is these plants they're in, like you said, some of the, the roughest terrain, yet they have uh, within them like a, an abundance of moisture. It's so wild, right? Like yeah. A plant in such a dry place could be so damn juicy. <laughs> Completely. And I mean, like, it's you so could probably, weird. you could make an argument that like the, the survival and the growth and the success of like the early indigenous Mesoamerican population was, had a lot to do with the agave. Um, That's amazing. Which is just wild. I mean, like, so, you know, for me personally, and then I'll, I'll try to get, I'll kind of hop off, hop off this train for a second, but yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You man. Know, I, no, you're all I good, love this kind of stuff too. And I knew this would happen by the way. Cause I, I had like <laughs> these questions pre-done. I go, I know that, and this is typical of my podcast. We, we will veer off, but you know, we will get to this rum. I promise. It's all good, man. I mean, like, so for me, one of the, you know, one of the most eye-opening experiences you know, we were importing another tequila for a good long time. And that's what brought me to the company. Um, we're no longer importing it now because the brand did have a sale. Um, and so when like the brand sells, in some cases, they will also change importers. But, you know, uh. from 
from being deeply entrenched with that, studying agave, you know, about three years ago, I, I got, well, actually it's about four, five years now. Um, about five years ago, we started on a project that took me three years to get to completion, but that was the development of the tequila we currently have in the portfolio, and that's called El Velo. Um, but, you know, actually getting to walk through the production process with a master distiller, uh, talking through like every detail of production of, okay, like we want to make sure we're adhering to these standards. We want this sugar content, this acidity uh, for the agave. You know, it was just, it, it was a really wild experience and sure. something that I'm really grateful that like I got to be involved with and especially got to work and see how uh, that particular master distiller, his name is Carlos Hernandez Ramos, but how he kind of operates and thinks about the whole system. Cause it's, it was very different than what I had initially thought. That's so, awesome. You know, I love it. I can't wait to, we will have a mezcal tequila episode. Love it. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so that brings us, you know, back to four square rum distillery located on a former sugar plantation that dates back to 1720 approximately within the Caribbean Island of Barbados. The distillery was reopened by the Seal family in 1996. Distilling operations and blending are currently directed by Richard Seal, who's a fourth generation trader and distiller. This guy's made a lot of uh, headway in a short amount of time. Uh, you just see it all over the place. Uh, and I think it, you know, that like the cat's about to be out of the bag on rum. Um, just to begin with, Rome, I know this is a very broad question. But what are some of the characteristics and the general uh, flavor profile found in rum? Well, so th I'm going to draw kind of two distinctions here. We're going to talk about unaged rum or lightly aged rum, and then we will talk about heavily aged rum, right? Because if I'm going to think about it, that's kind of where the tree needs to split in my brain. Awesome. Um, so if we're looking at like unaged or lightly aged rum, um, I, I should probably start that like the whole category of rum is arguably one of the most flavor diverse of any spirits category in the world. Um, and that's because you're looking at cultural production techniques that date back generations, right? So when you're looking at something like even white rum or unaged rum, you've got everything from like super funky, tons of banana, tons of like pineapple and uh, lime zest and, you know, uh, vanilla and butterscotch and coconut showing up in the, the spirit all the way to like, there is uh, there are other practices where you'll get more to like extremely clean, more vodka-like, like super neutral. Um, you know, mm -hmm. so I think everybody has a perception of white rum as being more like vodka, um, but historically, culturally, traditionally, especially dating back to the 17th and 19th centuries, the rum was way more flavorful and way more diverse. So you'd have some spirits that are super sugar cane juice forward. Um, and, you know, that's where you're going to get your really funky kind of banana, pineapple, kind of those flavors. And then you would have others that were a little bit cleaner, you know, more like vanilla, molasses, coconut, um, things like that. Um, That's awesome. That, uh, and, you know, those two separate cat it just to me in my mind, just make it so conducive for cocktail making that specific, you know, like you're getting these tropical flavors, coconut. And then you, if you want a more cleaner slate, you know, if you're trying to enhance some of those fruity flavors, that first one sounds awesome. If you mm -hmm. want a cleaner slate, it also lends itself well to build off that base. So yeah, just right away, I'm thinking cocktails as soon as you start talking about uh, that, that white rum. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, when you get to the world of aged rum, right, like it's, it's, you got to think of that same spirit, right? So if you start with something that's super funky, banana-y, pineapple-y, et cetera, and then you throw it 
you know, in like an ex bourbon barrel. And I will say right now, a majority of the rum producers in the Caribbean are using ex bourbon um, Mm -hmm. or like they're aging. Right. So it's going to take a ton of the similar character that you'll get out of bourbon, but you've got the underlying notes of, you know, your pineapple, your coconut, your vanilla, et cetera, that are already just like molasses in the spirit that are then interacting with the wood, like with the oak. And so over a period of like, you know, let's say 10 to 12 years. Um, and if I'm going to look at Barbados rum in particular, since that's kind of like where we're headed, um, that's going to have a lot of, you know, generally similar characteristics as you would find in a bourbon. I would say that in general, like rum to me always has like toasted coconut, dried food, like dried stone fruits. So things like figs, uh, you know, dried cranberries, um, dry berries in general. Um, it's less like for me, bourbon is always like a lot of cherry and like fresh cherry. Um, whereas rum is kind of like darker flavors. Also tobacco is, uh, something I consistently find. And obviously like molasses, like there's lots of molasses character. So like that would be like generally how I describe it. I would say, you know, I've had, I've had so many people say to me like, Oh man, I don't drink rum. Rum is too sweet. Um, and like, you know, not to throw my father-in-law under the bus, but he was one of them for a while, as well as like my old roommate from college. They're both, they both said, oh no, I don't, I don't drink rum. It's just, it's always too sweet. And so it's like getting them, they, they were both over at, on one occasion and I just blind poured them some rum. And I know that they love, you know, like rye whiskey, bourbon, scotch, like that's mm. their wheelhouse, right? So like, I just blind poured them some rum and they were both like, holy shit, what is this, man? And I was like, that's rum. They're like, no, you're shitting me. It's like, no, seriously, dude, that's rum. Like you just, you just not found the run, the right rum yet, you know? And so it's now they are avid rum fans. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of just finding the right ones, finding the ones that aren't using a bunch of sweetener and other things going on too, because I think that's, that speaks more to the tradition of scotch and bourbon you know, which is where, where a lot of these folks are coming from. It's like, I want spirit that is true. That is, you know, kind of speaks to that kind of character. So. That is awesome. And you know, and it's so funny that you say that because for a long time, I always seems I get in the sweetness uh, argument a lot with scotch drinkers. Right? So it, it's <laughs> weird. And then they eventually do find their way over to bourbon and, and not that they abandon their scotch, but they, they learn to appreciate bourbon as well but that was always a, a, a thing that came up with folks that preferred scotch over bourbon was it bourbon was too sweet so it's funny then to hear mm-hmm. a bourbon drinker because there's a <laughs> lot of robust flavor in bourbon and um so for folks that i guess more layman folks out there that don't know some of what we're talking about uh the rum is uh bourbon is distilled from grain uh and, and it has to be a specific uh specific grains but most of it is corn whereas Mm -hmm. rum is distilled from molasses or sugarcane and so then what when they age it he's saying that the majority of that rum that's distilled is getting aged in a a barrel that previously held rum i mean previously held bourbon yeah right so then it's then and that's for a number of years and in the case of foursquare they're doing it for 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that it's taking on a lot of the characteristics of, of some of the, those bourbon flavors and, and then bringing something entirely new being that it's distilled from, from molasses. So 
I think it's exciting, man. I think it's really cool. I know a lot of uh, Scotch uses ex bourbon barrels as well, so mm-hmm. it's just cool that um, uh, all these flavors are being, um, all these different spirits are being uh, mixed around with these different barrels and producing some really cool flavors. And 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 it takes so long to kind of before you you're able to see what what the uh, result of that aging process is, right? I mean, 12 years to wait for something is pretty cool. And um, so for Foursquare, there's an exceptional cask selection and it's Uh right along the lines of what I was talking about. So can you describe the Foursquare exceptional cask selection? Yeah, yeah. Um, But really quick, I want to just, from a a Kansas City perspective, something that's kind of like fun and unique. Um, One of the largest barrel manufacturing like companies um in the world is actually independent yeah independent stave company you know coming from (laughs) coming from missouri and sourcing missouri white oak so you know it's it's just wild like to to be walking through uh like a a barrel house you know in barbados or in you know (laughs) another country so cool man in mexico and seeing like you know independence missouri just (laughs) in the middle of it so that is awesome um, yeah, so the exceptional casks. The so basically Foursquare as a distillery, you know, started in 1996, and they've been distilling a whole bunch, a whole a litany of different products, right? And primarily they've been blending. They have a blending tradition that goes back four generations, um, and only distilling since the 90s. But the exceptional casks represent, you know, it's not like they're everyday lines. These are, you know, uh, the distiller's selections. They're only released when Richard says they are exceptional in quality. Um, and so because of that, they're often unique, rare, limited, and when they're gone, they're gone, right? So in some cases, they are single maturations. In other cases, they are double maturations. And when I say something like single maturation, I mean like it's only sat in X bourbon barrels. If it's a double maturation, it might be X bourbon barrels and X Madeira barrels. Um, and you know, a very different approach and philosophy than you'd see in like, for example, with a scotch, but uh, as a finish. But so all of these are kind of limited rare one-offs because when the barrels were filled 10, 12, 14 years ago, um, you know, they were then emptied and everything was bottled and it was all shipped off. And so because of that, they come in and they go out and then we wait until we get another one. We never know what we're going to get and we never know how much of it we're going to get. Uh, but Richard always guarantees it's some of the best rum that he's got. That is awesome, man. And um, a lot of these rums you guys can find right now, and we'll talk a little bit about that here in a, in a bit. Uh, how does the climate in Barbados where four square distills and ages their rums contribute to the quality of the product? I mean, it's part of what you're saying, the home place. What is it about Barbados that's producing such great rum? So Barbados, I mean, for one, like you got to kind of consider what happens in the barrel, right? And you've got evaporation as like one of the key elements. And so like if you're making a sauce on a stove, right? And like you turn on the stove and you let it reduce, like as it reduces, it intensifies the flavor, right? And so like you're cooking down your tomato sauce or you're cooking down like, I don't know, whatever, like just a reduction sauce in general, you intensify the flavors. And so in Barbados, you've got a really warm tropical climate for 10 months out of the year, um, meaning it is high temperature and decently high humidity pretty consistently 10 months out of the year. Um, And because of that, you have a really high evaporation rate. 
So in general, you lose between four to 8% per year. Um, you know, and so like wow. the easy, the easy math that I always like to do is like, so just think of a 10 year rum. If it's sat down in that climate for 10 years, you have lost 40 to 80% of what you put into the barrel and it's just evaporated. So, you know, what you end up getting is this really intensely flavored spirit, um, you know, that just has tons of character to it. Um, because it's just, <laughs> I mean, frankly, because there's just so little there. Um, and there was somewhere that I, I'm trying to remember what the calculation was, but it's like a tropical climate is like three times more, uh, like aging, it, it like ages three times faster in a tropical climate versus a temperate climate. Um, so it's the comparison of like a 10 year, um, rum would be more equivalent to like a 24 or a 30 year scotch. Right. That's if you're amazing. comparing tropical to temperate, just because of the amount of evaporation that's occurring, um, because if you have high temperature, you have alcohol evaporate. If you have high humidity or sorry, it's the other way around. If you have high temperature, you have water evaporate. And if you have high humidity, you have alcohol evaporate. And so all of that evaporation basically creates this intensified kind of flavor profile um, in what's left in the barrel. I think that's an excellent description and I, it, it's like concentrate. So we yeah. have like bottled concentrated <laughs> uh, rum here and it's, it's no secret that Richard Seal, um, who's a distiller and blender of four square rum is a proponent of standards that keep rum pure from additives like sweeteners or say coloring. Can you speak on GI and what that means for Barbados rum? And we talked a little bit about that with the tequila, how it has to be in a specific region, has to have specific ingredients. Where is rum right now in that? And and uh, just give us a general description of that. Sure. So a GI, first and foremost, uh, is a geographical indication, right? And it's basically a set of laws that are primarily governed by the country of origin that are then usually recognized by another country, right? So the great example, right? Like tequila is a perfect example. Um, tequila is established and governed by the Mexican government. The, um, the United States then recognizes those standards um, and then upholds them. Similarly, bourbon, right? Like the United States has established and protects what bourbon and rye whiskey are. And when bourbon or rye whiskey are sent off to, you know, Europe or Barbados or Mexico, um, those standards are then also upheld um, and recognized. And so what it means is that you know that if it's labeled as bourbon, um, that it has that particular set of standards and identity to it. So what's interesting is that, you know, I mentioned how rum is super diverse. Um, if you look at the way that the United States government at least looks at rum, it actually falls all under one classification and it doesn't have the layers that you would find in whiskey, right? So in whiskey, yeah. we have whiskey and scotch and bourbon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in rum, it's all just under rum. So... <laughs> Um, what they're trying to do is establish um, a, a set of essentially regulations that will at least validate what, quote, Barbados rum is. Um, and this is something that Jamaica had passed uh, several years ago. Jamaica, rum, you know, and so like Jamaican rum also has a GI and it is currently in place. Um, awesome. So once that's in place, then it's a matter of, OK, working with the American government to then recognize it. Um, ironically, Jamaican rum is not recognized by the American, by the U.S. government yet, but that's the first step is you have to have the GI in place at the country of origin. Um, 
So a large part of what Richard is fighting for is that he wants specifically anything labeled as, quote, Barbados rum to adhere to, you know, what he believes are standards of geographical origin, right? So it's like you're only, um, you know, you're abiding by traditional standards of production. You are using, um, you know, molasses, um, molasses based. You're not using additives, no sugaring, no coloring, no flavoring, or you can still use some coloring. Uh, the coloring adjustments have to be equivalent to that that's happening in scotch. So it's like, you know, the Scotch Whiskey Association does allow for some color to be added to basically match the color of the whiskey coming out of the barrel. So once you've diluted it, it usually loses that color. And so they do allow for E150A, which is a caramel coloring additive, to be used to match that. Um, but the biggest thing is that he's arguing that the distillation, the maturation, and the mm. bottling all needs to be done in Barbados, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we talked about, like the climate of Barbados is super unique. And so if it's going to be labeled as Barbados rum, his argument is that you should know that this was distilled, matured, bottled in Barbados um, and abiding by those standards of, you know, no sugar, no flavoring. Um, if it's labeled as Barbados rum. Now, if you remove the word Barbados and you just call it rum and you say that it's, you know, from Barbados um, separate separately on the label, then that's perfectly fine. You could still, you know, you could age it elsewhere. You could bottle it elsewhere. You could add flavoring to it, but it's specifically trying to protect quote Barbados rum. Um, so, and that's, I'm trying to think of like how to best translate it to like a general consumer. Right. And so it's a matter of like, if you're walking to the store and you see something labeled as Barbados rum, you're going to know that that was bottled and produced in Barbados and does not have flavoring or sugar additives in it. That's awesome. what, essentially what Richard is fighting for. And, and I, th I think it's great to have that transparency, folks. It's like it's becoming more important that if you're going to go out and buy like a banana rum, that's fine, you know, but and you know that they're going to add banana flavoring to it. But if you're buying a, a spirit that you think is aged and uh, has no additives and you're looking for a specific experience and you should know whether or not they've added sugar to that after the, you know, and it's incredible the amount of flavors that you could get from such a pure uh, spirit like these these um exceptional cask uh rums it, it's just it's so cool to know that they haven't added anything to enhance that it's just the the molasses the distillate the aging process in the ex-bourbon barrels the climate in barbados the all of that contributes to these amazing flavors it just and there's some incredible um reviews online that you guys could check out just you know type in uh Foursquare 2008 exceptional cask review and you'll get any number of reviews and I haven't seen a bad one yet you no. know everything is you know on the nose coconut banana and mm -hmm. then on the flavor profile you know uh like some of the the nice tobacco cherry um all these cool vanilla things mm -hmm. that you wouldn't expect from something that didn't have any kind of enhanced flavoring so there's been a run on American bourbon over the last decade and beyond, and many of the affordable bottles that made bourbon a great buy have now become allocated. So it's crazy because bourbon, uh, some of these great bottles, they were great because you could get them for $30, right? Yeah, and then, and then And then it was like for 30 bucks, it was considered a great buy. But now these bottles are allocated. They're on secondary for hundreds of dollars. And I don't know if at that point, they're great buys anymore. Right. right. And like so, Weller, but, Weller 12 year to me is always the classic for that. Right. 
Like yeah, when I was in right. college, man, like there was more Weller 12 than like you could shake a stick at. And, you know, you're buying it for like, what, 20, 30 bucks a bottle. That's right. <laughs> and now, like, just, just, just kidding. Like, good luck finding well, and it, it. And it's, it's gone down to, you know, the, the, uh, Weller 107 was uh-huh. all over the place. That was $20. Now MSRP is at 50 if you can get it. Exactly. And secondary is out of control. I, it's even trickling down just to the regular Weller, the green label. Yep. Yeah, it's nuts. Uh, so, um, so here's the thing. Many of four square rooms are aged in ex bourbon barrels and have 12 year age statements. So from, this is my little spiel to, and I shouldn't be doing this because I think <laughs> this is going to make it harder for me to eventually find the, the four square, but I know, uh, Brandon here, so maybe I'd, I'll, I'll have a leg in, but so for a lot of my fellow bourbon enthusiasts that are well at home with these kind of flavors that love the age statements or looking for a pure spirit, um, these are readily available and and it's like that if you could take a snapshot back when bourbon was first breaking, this is the time that you could uh, acquire some really great bottles fairly easily in this Kansas City market. And so uh, it sucks for me, but it's only a matter of time that the cat's out of the bag. Right, Brandon? Oh, yeah. And I mean, like we've we've already started to see it, you know, to give you some perspective, like one of the first exceptional casks that launched and it launched five about I think it was five years ago. Um, when it was selling, it was, it's the pork cask. And when it was selling, it was selling for between 34 to $39 on the shelf. And there is a retailer in Brooklyn that has held onto their stock and they are currently selling it for $250 a bottle. Right. Wow. So it's, it's exactly that. And like you were saying, secondary is already starting to take off with it. Um, you know, Richard has kind of held, held, held his ground with us and, has said, look, I'm not going to price gouge on this. I always want these rums to be affordable, um, mm-hmm. but they are limited. So like when they're gone, they're gone. And similarly, we've actually kept our margins the same too. The only thing that's really impacted, you know, the price of some of these is that for one, as they get older, you know, the cost of production is higher because you've got 12 sure. and 13 year rum evaporating. Um, but then also as Richard has moved more towards cask strength, um, mm-hmm. we're paying, we're paying higher excise taxes because you pay on, you know, proof gallons. So it's like, if it's 62% alcohol, you pay a lot more on that. But yeah, I mean, in the Kansas city area, like right now, um, you know, there's releases that we have been as the importer, we've been out of stock on, um, you know, for months, if not in some cases uh, over a year or two. Um, but you know, I've seen multiple bottles on the shelf at, you know, Gomer's Midtown at Mike's at, um, uh, cellar rat at, you know, on the Kansas side, like down at Lucas, um, that's right. You know, uh, Stanley station is another one. Like I know they've, they've usually kept a really, really good stock. There's libations and company, uh, down in Lee summit. So, I mean, like there's tons of, you know, I, I would say that they're actually pretty, pretty well spread here in the, the Kansas city area. Um, and you know, in general, you can always go ask your favorite retailer, uh, you know, to be, keep an eye out on on it because like realistically they bang in and bang out from our perspective. So like one of the latest releases was called nobiliary and we, as the importer sold out of it in 10 days. I mean, so it's like, you know, all of the cases hit the United States and we were completely sold out within 10 days. That's amazing. You know, finds its way out to shelves. And like, so like I personally went and bought three bottles off shelf at three different retailers (laughs) because I was just like, I'm, I mean like for me, 
you know, my, my general rule of thumb is like, you know, one to drink, one to, one to save. Yeah. So, um, and then one, one like this, I was like, well, since it went so quickly, like I'm going to pick up one extra one to just like have as a backup for a potential gift or, you know, down the road. Like if I taste it and I'm like, oh, this one's really special. I really love it. Like I'm going to pick up an extra bottle just for myself. But yeah. And for me, it hasn't been really difficult to find it. It's gotten, I've noticed it a little bit harder. And as time goes on, you know, you'll see stuff that was readily available start to vanish. You know what I mean? So you'll see initially when they drop something, say like premise, it's just all over the place. And then like now, you know, you're, you're one bottle here, one there. And, you know, as time goes on, you see like this 2008 that just came out, it'll be less and less. And you'll just, you know, your chance, your window to, to get that bottle will, will is slowly closing, but still not difficult to do. And I, I have now started seeing them put four square behind glass on mm-hmm. in, in several locations that I've seen. So, and that was just something I had never seen before. And that's the first sign that uh, these things are going to become uh, exclusive to people that are spending a a lot more money in that liquor store because they're going to, you know, there's only a a finite amount of these bottles. And so they're going to be allocating to their more uh, busier customers. You know, that's just, and every liquor store is different in that respect, you know, and you guys have no control of that, neither just four score or the secondary, just like bourbon there, you know, uh, uh, Heaven Hill isn't making a bunch of money off of all these secondary prices that people are <laughs> are are put are paying for their uh, bourbons. It's going to be similar to if this happens to rum. It's not like yeah they're making all this money off the secondary prices. It's just whatever the MSRP is. And um, so yeah, right now readily available, affordable in the sense that you're getting a long age statement spirit. Mm-hmm. that is uh very difficult to produce in a specific climate and with specific barrels uh some of them are like he's mentioned poor casts most of them ex bourbon barrels so you know all my bourbon drinkers out there you you're going to be right at home with some of the flavor profiles of these ex sherry casks uh wine casks i mean there's it's just and each one has a unique take on it on it and even from the years uh from the 2004 mm-hmm. is going to be different than 2008 slightly but you know that one they're really trying to lock in right the the year exceptional cast one the like the 2007 2008 they're trying to i mean dial that one into a specific flavor profile it seems i, I that's what i heard i mean it's not going to always they're not going to all be the same but it seems like that one's trying to lock in a specific flavor kind of right? i mean it's <laughs> It's more of that Richard is aiming for the vintages, right? So there's been 2004, 2005, 2007, and 2008. He skipped 2006, and there's a whole long rabbit hole about that. But they are, <laughs> they are always going to be ex-bourbon, um, you know? And so it's kind of like there's, there is like a general standard to it, but they are all wildly different in flavor, um, you know? And it's just like, even if even if say it's like a, a double maturation, like say it's X bourbon and X sherry, like no two of those are going to taste the same. And so that's kind of the whole idea behind these vintages is showing you just how wildly different the flavors can be from one batch to another, even though they're all 12 year X bourbon barrel cask strength, you know, they are completely different 
completely different beasts. Um, That's you know, awesome. like two, 2004 to me is like really high, like acetone. So like lots of cherry flavor, uh, very bright, very kind of like acidic on the palate. 2005 was a lot more kind of dark tobacco, caramel, butterscotch, vanilla. 2007 um, was kind of a blend of those two where it was like a little bit darker and deeper, but had some like really nice, like acidity, lemon, orange peel, like fresh note, like fresh kind of like citrus to it. And then 2008 is just like this berry bomb. I mean, which is like completely different from all the other, the other three, at least for me, like I get way more kind of blueberry, blackberry, That's um, great. you know, kind of like those, those kind of notes to it. So there's a lot of similarities, but they are, they are, as far as like there's similarities in production practice, but they are very different in flavor. So, um, and Brandon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and I appreciate yeah. you taking the time, man. I know you, you're busy and uh, with, uh, pushing your wares and, and educating people on mezcal and rum, uh, where, where can people follow you on social media or where, where can they get more information? So, uh, for me personally, I am Brandon Altamar, and that is A L T A M A R. Again, Altamar. Um, you can also follow us on Altamar Brands. AltamarBrands.com is great. And as far as more information, honestly, following the brands on social media is usually one of the best spots to start. Um, if you hop on YouTube and you search for Altamar Brands, you'll find a bunch of videos that I've produced as well. Um, great videos. Thanks, man. Yeah, and working to make some more of those too. So just cranking them out and trying to, you know, give all the facts and nothing but the facts, ma'am. So um, really quick, if I, if I can say two last fast things about like the GI, um, just because I think it's important. Um, protecting something like Barbados rum, it's, it's really easy for me to talk about like, oh, well, I believe it should be this and I believe it should be that, you know, and like from my perspective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, this is not for me to do. This is for the people of Barbados to handle. <laughs> so you know, the commentary that I'm bringing to it is really just, it's more of trying to voice the things that I have seen and voice what I have heard from those that are, you know, on the ground doing it there, um, what they've brought up. But by no means, you know, I think, I think it's super important that whatever the Barbados GI is, is established and maintained by the Barbados people first and foremost. Um, great. And That's the other, a great statement. And then the other bit is just, you know, when we talk about things like additives, you know, everyone automatically goes towards like, oh man, yeah, banana rum, pineapple rum, spiced rum. Of course there's additives, but that's not the stuff that I'm most concerned about. The stuff that I'm the most concerned about is when you're paying, you know, upwards of 90 to hundred dollars a bottle for something that appears like it's a 12 year rum, but it's really nothing more than like a three year rum plus color, plus sugar, plus additives to try and get to the flavor that you would have of a proper, you know, like, you know, a, a well-aged matured non-additive spirit. So, you know, that's that's the last bit where it's just like I think those are two important things to just like as a consumer be aware of. So oh yeah, that's an excellent point too. Making that differentiation between you know like a flavored cinnamon rum versus hey man, I thought I was buying this great high end rum and it turns out that it's spiked with a bunch of sugar and that's where where I'm getting some. Yeah, that's that's a great point, man. And yeah, exactly. those those I think I agree with you, man. Those things should be protected and. It's great to hear your perspective. And man, if you guys want to try something different, if you, you bourbon drinkers out there, give Foursquare a shot and it, it's a great experience, man. Yeah. I would definitely say if you're a bourbon drinker, hunt down one of the vintages. Like 
the 2007, 2008 should still be readily available on shelf. Um, but just, you know, 12 year X bourbon cask strength, no color, no sugar, no additives, no filtration, just, you know, rum. So I can't wait for us to do this again. We could actually get into some of the tasting of these. It's too early right now for, well, I, if it, maybe if we we're on a beach or something somewhere, it'd be perfect time <laughs> for rum, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm on coffee mode right now, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on my second cup. <laughs> <laughs> right on Brandon. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. And I'll, I'll talk to you later, man. Awesome. Ruben, thanks for your time, man. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Anoche un recuerdo me encontré en mi cama mala pase a esa hora de la noche extrañé como lo hicimos esa última vez mi bebé una noche Hacerlo tan encima de mí, pa' que te acuerdes con